Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter number 2. Luke chapter number 2. We're going to begin reading in verse number 39. Uh, verse number 39 in just a moment. I want to set this up. This, to me, is an exciting passage. Uh, this, I'll say this uh, in a minute, but I'll, say it, I'll just say it again. This is the only account that we have of Jesus' life from his birth until his earthly ministry started. This is it. This is the only, this is the only uh, insight into his childhood that we have. And so it's a very fascinating passage that we're going to be studying today. But we've reached a, a unique portion of Scripture, as I said. Uh, this is the only recorded event. And um, this, is the on, this, is, this passage are his only record, it contains his only recorded words. And in, in from birth to his earthly ministry as well. So it's real fascinating what his only recorded words say. So if you'll stand with me, we'll read this passage together, beginning in verse number 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. I want to pause something I won't really bring out in the sermon, but it says the boy Jesus. If you look at Luke, it goes from infant to, there's a, a word for little child, and here it's an older child, and then finally to adulthood. Uh, there's a progression in the book of Luke in, in the words that he uses. Verse number um, 44, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And his parents saw him, they were and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my or I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, the the passage of scripture in front of us. I also want to thank you that so many people have made it back and that you have protected our, our flock and um, your people. And I pray that this will be a blessed time of worship and I pray that you will inflame our hearts and ignite our hearts with the love for God and your word in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. That's right. Uh, well, Luke sets the stage for us. Uh, by shifting the scene from Jerusalem to Nazareth, he, you notice what Luke doesn't mention. He doesn't mention the adoration by the Magi. 
He doesn't mention their flight down into Egypt. He doesn't mention any of that. That's not Luke's purpose. Um, Luke uh, was focused on something completely different. And so what he chose to talk about in Jesus' life was different from what Matthew did. His parents, though, were very devout. And they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. And that's verse number 39. They, they got his circumcision taken care of, his presentation in the temple, the cleansing, and all those sorts of things. And then they went back to Nazareth. That's verse number 39. Next verse is verse number 40. Now, one of the, the interesting aspects of Hebrew literature is a, is a lot of times when they tell stories, they bracket those stories. And you can see a bracket here in this story. The first bracket is verse number 40. Look at what it says. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That's the introduction to the next story. The conclusion of the story is verse number 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That's the story. It's, it's bracketed with an introduction and conclusion that are identical with each other. And in this one verse, go back to verse number 40, realize what he does. In one verse, he covers Jesus' life from the age of 12. Well, actually, I'm sorry. In, in verse number 40, he covers Jesus' life from, from infancy until age 12. And in verse number 52, he covers Jesus' life from age 12 until about the age of 30 when he started his public ministry. And so those are the brackets. That's a summary of what he's doing here. Now we know that Jesus is, is 12 because verse 42 tells us so. Verse 39 tells us that he grew physically. The child grew and became strong. Physical growth. This is another evidence that Jesus just didn't appear to be human, but that Jesus was human. He was God in the flesh. But I want to, you to think about something else. This, I, I spent part of my week thinking about this aspect of, and, and I was in awe and amazement of this. Think about this. Jesus went through stages of physical development just like the rest of us. He went from the throne in heaven, being adored by the angels, the multitude of angels, to being in his mother's womb, and when he was born, he was limited physically to the, way, to the limitations that we have. And so he had to learn to crawl as a baby. Uh, he had to learn to walk. He crawled, and then he walked. First he was a newborn. Then six months later, he could sit up, or however long it is. If you're, uh, I won't make a child joke about how great your child is right but <clears throat> then he learned to use his hands and his feet and and to move around and somewhere around the age of one the son of God became a toddler and he learned how to walk now I don't know if he was in his mother's cupboards all the time after that or not we, we, Luke doesn't tell us that but he learned to walk and then the son of God turned into a little boy and then almost before his parents knew it, Jesus was a teenager. He went through the same physical development that we did. Is that not astounding to think about? How can this be? What is a, 
how did God put this together? And what was the arrangement? We, we don't really know that much. But we do know this. At the age of 12, Jesus was on the brink of adulthood. Now, teens, listen to me. Jews considered a person an adult at the age of 13. Not 18 like we're here. 13. So act like it. No, I'm just kidding. That's not where I was going with that. Mom, don't try to go there with that either. But what I'm trying to say is that at the age of 13, think about it. I should embarrass somebody and say, who's 13 here? But I won't do that, okay? You, when you, in Jesus' day, when you turned 13, you became a son of the law or a son of the commandment, and you stepped out from under your parents' And you became an equal with your father. You were, that is, you were equal under the law of God. In other words, you were just as responsible for the law of God as a 13-year-old as your 35-year-old dad or however old he happened to be at that time. Think about that. You went from being a boy to being a son at the age of 13. And Jesus was on the cusp of that. Now, it's easy for us to understand his physical development, isn't it? It's harder for us, though, to understand his mental development. That's a much harder thing. The Bible says that he increased with wisdom. He was filled with wisdom. He was fully man, and he was fully God. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. We cannot comprehend how that worked, can we? We can't. But we're going to make an attempt today to understand it partially today and partially next week, okay? His brain grew just like every other human brain. It developed just like every other human being. He did not come out of his mother's womb and start doing calculus or writing the Hebrew alphabet or anything like that. He developed just like every other human being. But there's one critical difference between Christ and us in this regard, in the matter of of development of the brain. Do you know what it is? And this is critically important. Jesus was unhindered by sin nature. He did not have a sin nature. He was unhindered by depravity. The implication of that is that his intellect advanced to its full capacity. The Bible is clear that our sin nature inhibits our intellectual ability. When we are unhindered from sin, when we go to heaven, we no longer have sin nature, our intellect will be far superior to what it was down here on earth. He never had that issue. Christ was never lazy. But he always tried to learn as much as he could. He exercised good stewardship of his intellectual abilities in achieving a maximum potential of the human mind. Jesus was a child who never wasted time. I'm sure he played with the other children, but his mind had such a capacity that was greater than every other child's mind. His human mind had developed to the point where finally at the age of 12, he could contain the mind of God. 
His human mind had grown to contain the mind of God. He had developed to a full understanding of divine wisdom. In other words, as God knew, He knew. Somewhere along the way, his, what I'm trying to say is His mind developed to the point where He knew He was God, and He had the full wisdom of God because He was God, and He had all of God's divine wisdom at His mental fingertips, if I can use that. We don't know how that happened. We don't know the mechanism or anything. But he developed just like every other child. Then there's one more thing that we see that Luke mentions out of this verse. Look at what it says. He says that the favor of God was upon him. He had divine favor. Why was God's favor upon him? Well, he was God, right? But it's it's, it's something else. The favor of God was upon him because he was perfect morally. He was sinless. So he received the favor of God resting upon him because as God's son, he did everything that pleased the Father. Right? Completely obedient. Now think about that one for just a minute. This is straying off into some theology that I hadn't planned on going to this morning. But when Christ's righteousness is laid upon us, what God sees is all of Christ's righteous acts placed on our account. And so now we are fully pleasing to the Father. Isn't that wonderful? He progressed from perfect innocence to perfect knowledge and perfect holiness. Don't miss this. He was tempted in all points. The temptations of an infant. The temptations of a young child. Think about infants. Their, their lack of understanding. When they're hungry, the whole world, the whole airplane knows it. Right? That's not Christ. Christ wasn't that kind of an infant. He, he faced the same temptations as a young child. The, the same temptations of an older child. And he did this without sin. I mean, these, these statements, they stagger the mind to try to, to think about, to put together. If, if we sometimes take the incarnation for granted, it's only because we haven't wrestled with the full implications. What does it really look like to have a perfect child. And no, you don't have one, okay? Don't come up and tell me this after the sermon, okay? But really, honestly, what infinite condescension it was for God's Son to become a man, to have a human being that He created changing His diaper, feeding Him, completely relying upon this human being, He had all the limitations of humanity except for sin. And this too is part of what he he suffered on our our part. This This is staggering. I don't know if you can wrap your mind around it because I certainly can't. I can't even imagine what that was like. Now follow follow with me, will you? He's 12 years old. He's on the cusp of becoming an adult at 18. He's fully aware that he is God. And notice where they are and what he is doing. 
where, what scene did Luke choose out of Jesus' young life? Passover. Now, this is me reading a little bit into the text, but I don't think it's reading a, the wrong way. Okay, follow. Some, Luke is indicating here that he now has the full comprehension of God. It may have just recently occurred in his young mind, once his mind was fully developed. And now he's in Jerusalem at Passover, fully aware of who he is, fully aware of his mission, and his parents taking the Passover so he might experience the richness of its meaning. He had been taught from a, a young child the meaning of Passover, and since he knew, he knew he was Messiah. He knew that he would be slaughtered for our sin. It couldn't escape his notice that these lambs, and by the way, there are all kinds of different estimates, but one that more seemed to settle on than another is there were at least 100,000 lambs being slaughtered in two days. Imagine the amount of, now they had, I'll give you a little bit of background, they had these, these drains that drained into the valley that drained the blood from where they, um, where they tied the lamb's head down and they slaughtered it. It ran, the blood ran. 100,000 or more lambs were slaughtered in two days. Imagine the bloody scene that is. And here is this 12-year-old boy fully knowing that these don't even take away sin, that it's going to require it's going to require his blood. As a 12-year-old, he knew that. One commentator said this, all of the slaughter, of the butchery that was going on, all the bloodletting which pictured him, the Lamb of God, who could alone take away the sin of the world. And of all the scenes of his young life, Luke chose Passover to bring to light who Jesus was. Now notice verse number 43 with me, if you will. Verse 43 tells us that the parents left for Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind and the parents didn't know it. Verse number 44, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and they did not find him, all right, what's going on with these negligent parents? What kind of a yahoos are these guys, right? Well, back in those days, they used to travel and care. Travel was by on foot or on donkey or something like that. Very dangerous. Uh, there's, there's a place on the way to Jericho where it's called, there, there's a location, it's called the Good Samaritan Inn. And they believe that when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan about the people going down, it's literally downhill from Jerusalem all the way to Jericho except for one spot. And it's in that one spot they know for a fact that people used to rob people of their goods in that one spot because there was a slowdown, you had to go back uphill, and then you went back down again. Very dangerous to travel alone. So they would travel in caravans. Most of the time, these caravans, like for Passover, would be the caravan from Nazareth. So a giant group of people from Nazareth 
would travel to Jerusalem together and travel back together. So these kids are in this small village. They all know each other. Families are together. Neighbors are together. So what's to worry? We, you know the kid's out there somewhere, right? And that's, that's the situation most likely that they found themselves in. Sometimes these caravans numbered in the hundreds of people, but they did it for safety. So the children would have been playing together. Sometimes the men would have been traveling together. Sometimes the women would have traveled together. It was a, it was a social time. But it wasn't until evening when all the kids went back to their parents' tents, they realized that Jesus was not with them. Now, most likely they went downhill towards Jericho, so they would have to wait overnight, turn around, go back up from Jericho, back to Jerusalem. So there's day two, right? And then stay overnight in Jerusalem, and on the next day start looking for Jesus. So that is why verse number 46 says, after three days they found him in the temple. It doesn't say three days of searching, does it? It says three days. Down a day, back a day, overnight, third day, they start looking for him, and they found him in the temple. In the temple. Now that word for temple there is a very specific word, and it means the courtyard. And the courtyard is huge. Massive courtyard. There would have been, at this time, thousands of people still in the courtyard. Why, why do I say that? I say that because Passover was one of three festivals that all Jewish men were to come into Jerusalem for. Not the women, but the Jew, Jewish men. A lot of times, the women would come with them as well. But there would have been men from all over the Roman Empire who came to Jerusalem for that festival. There would have been great men. There would have been teachers from all over the Roman Empire in Jerusalem. We're told that oftentimes these well-known teachers, these great teachers would stay in Jerusalem for a period of time after Passover and teach. Now you've got to remember something. Nazareth was just a little backwater village. Tiny little village. They didn't have remote learning. They didn't have Zoom. They didn't have virtual classrooms. And so when, when great minds, the well-known teachers, were gathered in Jerusalem, people would have stayed to listen to them. And one of the people who stayed was none other than young Jesus himself. That's why verse number 46 says, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. They found him in a, in a very traditional scene. In those days, the teacher sat. And it seems to be that in the courtyard there, there were teachers. And they were teaching, and groups would be gathered around sitting, listening to the, their teachers, all in the courtyard, just sitting and listening. And so Mary and Joseph just walked among the teachers. Now here's a young man I want you to think about this. Here's a young man whose mind has not been tainted by sin, whose understanding is far greater than any human being's. His mind is clearer and sharper than ours. And where do we find him? In the temple, learning about God's Word. Now, why would he need to do that? 
Well, there's a principle here. That is, that those who have spiritual life have a love for God's Word. Right? Those who have spiritual life love God's Word. Jesus loved His Word. Jesus is the Word, and God loves the Word. Right? So it stands to reason when the Bible says that we are in Christ, that we go from death to life because of Jesus. And when we are saved, we are imparted what kind of life? The life, a life like Jesus' life. So that that's why 1 Corinthians 15 says that when we will get a resurrection body. And guess what that resurrection body is going to be like? It's going to be like his resurrection body because we're going to get the same kind of life. And when we are saved, we are imparted the same kind of spiritual life. In other words, we're going to have a, a Jesus-shaped life placed within us. That means that our lives will be shaped like his life. It means, and this is the primary implication that I want to draw out today, it means that just as Jesus loved the Word, if you are in Christ, you love the Word. Let me say that one more time. Jesus imparts a love for His Word in His people's lives. And so therefore, if you are in Christ, you love His Word. If you are not in Christ, you do not love His Word. It's that black and white. Do we have examples of people loving God's Word from Scripture? We do. Think about the psalmist. The psalmist said, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Commandments is just another way of saying God's Word. He said again in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is your, my meditation all the day. Can you say that God's Word is your meditation? Can you say that you love His Word? God's Word has been implanted in you. I, I love talking to people about God's Word. I had a conversation out in the narthex before, uh, before the, the service with somebody, just talking about Scripture, talking about different Scriptures. This is, I, said, I read this and I read that and this. I love that kind of conversation. It's somebody who's thinking and meditating on God's Word. Uh, Psalm 119, 127. I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. In other words, for the, the psalmist, here's a pile of gold and here's a Bible. Which one are you going to choose? Because Jesus loves the Word. And because He is the Word made flesh, we love His Word. And where there is no love for God's Word, there is no, love, there is no life. You know, Many of you have had COVID. I don't know how many of you had COVID, uh, but a lot of you have, okay? One of the side effects of COVID is that people lose their taste and their smell, right? They lose their taste. You know, funny, I've had a number of people say, I lost weight. That's a good thing. I lost my sense of taste and I lost weight. Now, why is that? Why is that? Because when you lose your taste... You, you, you lose your love for the food as well. I, I had somebody talking to me about texture. 
Did you ever know the texture of, and he named the food? No, I hadn't really thought about it. I liked it very well. Well, he said, let me tell you, when you can't taste it, the texture makes it terrible. <laughs> right? Well, I'm afraid that many believers do not have an appetite for God's Word like they should because they're spiritually sick. This is not a permanent thing, by the way. It's a temporary thing. We, we make choices every day. You want the choices every single day. Do I feed on God's Word and meditate on God's Word, or do I allow endless TikTok videos to come across my phone? Do I scroll Instagram all, every time I'm bored, or do I actually think about God's Word? Do I let the 24-7 news feed distract me from God's Word? When you allow your mind to be constantly steeped in these sorts of mindless things as social media, and I'm going to say the news as well. By the way, there's nothing wrong with watching the news, right? It's that constant, constant feeding on the news. Uh, you can catch the news in just a few minutes every day, right? When you allow your mind to be constantly steeped in these sorts of things, the Word of God and eternal things, they lose their luster. You begin to lose your taste for God's Word. And when one is more, more focused on temporal than eternal, when, when you are reading the Bible or trying to listen to a sermon and you find your mind wandering to whatever temporal pursuit really uh, is, is floating your boat or whatever you want to say right now, then what is true of you is what Jesus said in the parable of the soils. He said this, As for what is sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, and listen to what he says, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches chokes the word, and what happens to it? Jesus then says, and it proves unfruitful. Now in this parable, that person is a lost person. But the principle is transferable. A Christian who allows himself to be carried away by the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, the word becomes unfruitful. They lose their appetite for the word. And so for the Christian, their love for the word can wane a little when there is sin, when there's distraction, when there's suffering. But let me tell you something. When you hear the word preached, and you hear it preached powerfully, what happens inside? There's joy, isn't there? When you hear the Word taught, when you read the Word of God, when you sing praise to God, there's an endless inward joy. And the reason for that is because Jesus has imparted His life into you. On the other hand, someone who has never heard uh, or never had an appetite for the Bible is someone who has never had spiritual life. So my question is, dear believer, where are you? Did you have a real appetite for God's Word and it's kind of waned? Maybe it's time to take stock. What's going on up here? Why, why has my love grown cold? And, and remember that Christ has imparted His love for the Word and, and by His Holy Spirit, His understanding of the Word into your life. It's your very life. Secondly, God gives the ability to learn the Word and obey the Word at a very young age. Jesus was only 12. I know what you're saying. Yeah, but He's the Son of God. 
it's, it's more than that. All, it was true of the whole culture. When they turned 13, they could move out of the house, they could get married, they could provide for a family at the age of 13. Imagine that, will you? They can do that. There was no extended transitional time that we call teenager. And I'm not using that as an insult, by the way. That was not a category that they, they had. So teens as early as junior high. Listen, teens, if you're here, listen to me. As early as junior high, you have the ability to think seriously every single day, teenager. Teen boy and teen girl, young man, young lady, you have the ability to live each day with an eternal purpose at 12 and 13 years old. Why does our culture expect teens to spend their days scrolling through social media? Can I share something with you that I think is really thrilling? Uh, in our Bible Institute, we have several teenagers in our Bible Institute. That thrills my heart. Because teenagers, as early as junior high, can start making a serious eternal impact on their life and the life of people around them. They can think seriously about Greek and Hebrew and theology and biblical themes and begin putting it all together. Their mind is sharp. Probably sharper than ours, right? And so, so teens, my desire and prayer for you is that you live every day with an eternal purpose. Teenager, wake up every day with the determination and the desire that I'm going to learn something else about God today. I'm going to learn a little bit more about Scripture today. Every day, decide, uh, today when I get up, I'm going to live for God's glory and I'm going to do my best to put off sin and immaturity and put on Jesus Christ and His righteousness. That's not beyond a teenager, somebody who's very young. And everything you're called to do, do it with all your might. Yes, you're called to go to school. I understand English is no fun. Okay? Do it to the best of your ability. Do it with gusto. Listen to your parents. Well, so, some, some of you are probably sitting there saying, you know what, Jared? You're laying on a little thick, aren't you? Well, Jesus was 12. He was, he was 30 years old, or roughly 30 years old when he began his public ministry. But did you know, and this is where some of these movies, I'm not going to mention some of them, TV shows are a little bit wrong. These disciples most likely were all teenagers, except for one. Peter may have been as old as 20 or early 20s because he was married and, and so on. John, some people think, may have been as young as 10 years old. Think about that. Daniel was a teenager in Babylon. Joseph was very young in his teens. David was caring for his father's sheep and probably killed Goliath as a teenager. So it's not beyond a young person to live for God's glory. And so parents, challenge your kids. 
They only rise to the level of your expectation of them, right? We know that for sure. Finally, let me give you this implication. God gave each family fathers to teach their children the Word of God. Fathers, grandfathers, listen to me. There is no one more influential to the direction of the whole family than the father. This has been borne out over study after study after study after study. There was a study done in Europe in 1983 that showed that there was one critical factor to the passing of faith to the next generation. You know what it was? Dad. The father. One person from years ago said this. Listen to what he said. When the head of the family is lukewarm or worldly, he will send a chill through the whole house. Fathers are called to lead their children. You know what the biblical term for a father is? Head. Head. Now, I never wrestled, but we came from Coleman, Wisconsin, one of the biggest wrestling towns I've ever seen in my life. And they had a saying. You know what it was? Where the head goes, the body goes. Isn't that absolutely true? And fathers, you are the head. Fathers are to be the chief instructors in biblical wisdom and knowledge in the household. The New Testament assumes that fathers have enough biblical knowledge to walk with God and to be able to instruct their families. That is why when you look at 1 Corinthians 14.35, wives are encouraged to learn spiritual truth from their husbands. It's just assumed that the men know the Bible. There are at least five times in Proverbs where sons are, li- are commanded to hear their father's instruction. Here, here's one. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. Now note, that's Proverbs 1.8, because we're going to come back to that in just a second. How about Proverbs 4.1? Hear, O son, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. Proverbs 13.1. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Now here's the question. What is this instruction that he's talking about? What kind of instruction? How to build a house? How to do carpentry? How to rebuild an engine? Well, Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. There's the instruction right there. The instruction that fathers are to impart to their children is about God. God and God alone. You fear God. You pattern the fear of God. You pattern a love for God's Word. Where you go, Dad, as the head of the family, I promise you the whole rest of the family is going to go. Fathers can't live what is not in their heart. Can they? We have to be very careful. I'll tell you what I love about Providence Bible Church. We have godly young mothers. We do. We have tremendous mothers in this family, in this church family. I, I love the fact 
that the young mothers, uh, the, the, and the, I'm, not, I'm not singling them out, the older mothers uh, as well. I'm talking about, when I say young, I'm talking about with kids in the household. That's what I'm talking about, okay? Let you, you're young if you have kids in the household. How's that? Okay. And I'm thinking, in, uh, the reason I'm saying this, I'm trying to dig myself out of a hole here, <laughs> is because I'm talking about instructing God's Word to the next generation. That's where I'm going with this, okay? I love the fact that they are thirsty for God's Word, they are learning God's Word, and they are growing in God's Word. That is wonderful. But the direction of the house is, by and large, dependent upon the direction of the dads. And so fathers, are you as diligent in your learning of God's Word as your wife is? Our nation is in the midst of a pandemic of absent dads. Yeah, yeah, they're home, but they're home in body only. They, they abandon their role to be spiritual teachers and examples. As, as a result, many times the mother is the teacher in biblical instruction. And God bless the mothers that we have. But because man is the head, and the household goes where the man goes. Fathers, men, fathers are called to know God, to know spiritual truth, to love spiritual truth, so that they can impart that spiritual truth to their children in the way that they talk and in the way that they live their lives. Jesus craved God's Word from a very early age. And that craving has been placed into our lives. Blessed be the Lord for that, right? Don't you love God's Word? I do. And He loves His Word. And if you are in Christ, you love His Word as well. Lord, I thank You for the profound truth in this boyhood scene from the life of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And Lord, we thank You that You have imparted that life into us, that love for Your Word. And so, Lord, I pray that we will be people who grow in our love for your word. We confess that our minds are so easily distracted by lesser things. Things that are somewhat important, but they're only important for a short period of time, Lord. And I pray that you will put in our hearts the order of importance, that we will realize, yes, these things are important, but they're not nearly as important as eternal things. The things that are seen are temporal and they will pass. The things that are unseen are eternal and they are forever. Give us minds to meditate on the eternal and the glories of God in His name. Amen.